Good morning. Please uh, join with me in uh, prayer for, for Brian. Father, we do indeed rest um, in the shelter of your wings, in the shelter of um, your wisdom, your strength, your courage. We ask that, um, that Brian's organization um, be blessed and still be able to, um, to exercise ministry, to proclaim the gospel in the areas of the world which are most hostile to that message. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for his ministry. Uh, we pray that um, it remain uh, secure uh, and, uh, and that he and his family and his staff remain safe. Um, we just, uh, we ask for their, uh, the effectiveness of their mission. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, amen. So, um, this morning, we are continuing uh, in our series, The Upside Down Kingdom. And I'd like uh, to invite you to turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 18. Uh, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, you can go to BibleGateway.org, uh, and I'll be in the ESV translation. This is a short series. We started the week after Easter with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, and then last week Amy preached a barn burner uh, regarding uh, Jesus' words about kids. Um, so the big picture of this uh, short series is all about kind of who's on top in the kingdom um, and who just kind of doesn't get it. Now, as a reader of these stories, it, it might be easy for us to kind of read them as if we are standing um, beside God hands on our hips looking down at Jesus teaching these lessons to the crowds of disciples and these religious leaders. And, you know, we have the benefit of, of 2,000 years of hindsight, um, and we have our study Bibles in front of us, and we might have our commentaries in front of us, and most importantly, we, we have the knowledge of where the ship is headed, right? We know that Jesus' words are prefacing his journey to the cross. We know that death couldn't hold him, and that through his resurrection, we find our own eternal life. Now, from that point of view, it might not be a bad thing for us to stand there at God's side, reading these stories by the power of Christ. But allow me to challenge that assumption today. But perhaps another approach would be to read the story from the point of view of someone who just hasn't gotten it yet. I mean, what would it be like if you read the story, not as someone who has all the answers, but rather as someone who is desperate for living water? My brother, uh, Mike, along with the, the Nichols men and uh, others in our, in our community, um, they, they spent time in active duty in the United States Marine Corps. When, when Mike went off to boot camp, 
years ago. My family spent a lot of time learning about his training in order that we might, you know, have at least a, a, a severely limited knowledge of, of kind of what he was going through. I remember how one of the documentaries that we watched, they, they talked about how Marine Boot Camp does its best to simulate the hell of battle in order to train men and women for potential warfare. The first thing they do, they said, is they break you down. Not so that they can leave you broken, so that they can build you up to be what you need to be to face the things that are out there. As we've learned again and again throughout scripture, humility is the key. I believe that humility is the Christian's superpower. It is the posture that each and every one of us can take in order to affect the most change in the world. The reason why that's the case is because it's straight out of Jesus' playbook. Paul, he puts it this way. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though, though, though he was in the form of God, Though he was in very nature God, he didn't count equality with God as a, as a thing to be grasped or as a thing to be exploited, but, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he then humbled himself. Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him because he was humble. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility was good enough for Jesus. It was good enough for, to be Jesus' game plan. The question for us today is, are we willing to allow it to be ours? Last week, Amy did an excellent job walking us through Jesus' words about kids. And, and last week, we heard Jesus say, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child does not enter, shall not enter. Tom Wright N.T. Wright says, there is something about the helplessness of children and their complete trust of those who love and care for them, which perfectly demonstrates the humble trust Jesus has been speaking of all along. Now, as a parent, it's funny to see how humble trust goes up against blatant disobedience. I'll tell Henry, Stop climbing on the thing, and I'll yell, get down! I'll even get up and go over and I'll take him off of the thing, and yet he still tests the limits of my patience. But if he was to hurt himself on said thing, there is only one place he would want to go. Not me, to his mother. If his mother was at the store or something, then he might come to me. But the point is still me. If that's not a picture, of my own faith and how I continually disobey God, uh, I don't know what is. You see, it's easier to embrace humility when we are broken. 
When we felt the pain of our own mistakes, it's easier for our uh, prayers to, to kind of plead in desperation. You, you're driving down the road, right? And you're not paying attention to how fast you're going, right? And then you see those lights behind you and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. But it's not the same when we're on top of the world, right? Unfortunately, the higher we get up the mountain of success, the harder it is to see how we got there. I'm reading this book right now called The Good to Great by Jim Collins. Uh, it's a business book about what sets um, good companies apart from great companies. And Collins and his team, they spent like five years mining data and looking for patterns in businesses. And, and the first principle he talks about is what's called level five leadership. So he kind of builds this like pyramid and he, and he says, level one leadership, that's like capable professionals doing what he or she needs to do in order to be an influential member of an organization. Level two is a contributing team member working with others towards a common goal. Level three is a competent manager, organizing resources and others, organizing resources and other people in order to achieve that common goal. And then there's level four, which is effective leadership. Collins talks about how lots of companies have built um, solid businesses, huge businesses on level four leadership. That's the level that can inspire and influence others to do good work and build great teams and offer great services. Basically, level four leadership is leading leaders. But even that wasn't what set superior companies apart. What set them apart was the achievement of what Collins calls a fifth level of leadership that he defined as leaders who build enduring greatness through a paradoxical combination of personal humility and professional will. These were leaders that sacrificed themselves for the good of the organizations they were serving. When they were interviewed, they didn't make it about them. It was about the people they served that were their focus. When they ask, you know, this, you know the, the interviewer said, how'd you do it? You know, how'd you build this company up from nothing and, and build it into something amazing? I mean, it was like a softball like, for the person to answer like, how great they were. But all these leaders did, all these level five leaders did was deflect attention away from themselves and talk about the incredible people that made their organizations tick. I love this because it reminds us that no matter where we go in the world, we can still find King Jesus, even at the top of corporate America. Jesus puts it this way. He says, you know that there are, uh, there are those who are considered rulers of the, um, of the Gentiles. Those that are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Um, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Think of Caesar. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man, meaning he's referring to himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, 
one such ruler comes up to Jesus one time. Now we're in Luke 18, starting in verse 18. We don't know much about him, the ruler that is. This particular story pops up though in all three synoptic gospels, Mark, Matthew, and then here in Luke. Luke calls him a ruler. Matthew is the one that actually called him young. All three make, make reference to his wealth, which is why historically the passage is known as, um, the, 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 this particular encounter is known as the rich young ruler. We don't know what it was that he ruled. Um, we don't really know whether or not he was Jewish. Uh, Jesus is going to later imply that he should be following the commandments, but he may um, have been what's called a, a God-fearer, basically Gentiles who, who followed the Jewish God. Uh, in Mark's version, he makes note that the man ran up to Jesus and knelt by his side, and that Jesus uh, responded, responded by loving him. So I don't think that this is one of those like awkward encounters that Jesus had with like religious authorities, at least not yet. No, right now, all we know, all we really know is what was on the guy's mind. The ruler, this rich young ruler, comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As, we talk, as we've talked about before, we have to be careful not to merely interpret the question as, Jesus, what good works must I do to get to heaven when I die? Remember, the verse just before this one quoted Jesus as saying that unless one receives the kingdom as a child, they, will, they won't enter it. And Jesus has repeatedly referred to the kingdom not as a far off distant reality or a far off distant someday thing, but as a thing which was at hand. Luke tells us that, that this man was a ruler. So to put it in ruler terms, he's asking Jesus, what must I do to claim the kingdom as my eternal inheritance? Or even what must I do to start living eternal life now? Jesus' response begins with how the ruler addressed him. He had called Jesus good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Some have seen this verse as um, threatening to two essential theological convictions of historic Orthodox Christianity. One, that Jesus was sinless and two, that Jesus was God. Now, I don't want to minimize those concerns, but personally, I don't think this verse puts either of those convictions into question. Again, from a posture of humility, I think Jesus is about to use this moment um, as a teaching opportunity for not only the ruler himself, um, not only for this rich young man, but also for his disciples, and anybody else who was in earshot, and of course, us, of course us. I think that remark was rather tongue-in-cheek, and we know that because of what follows. Jesus says, you want to inherit eternal life, huh? Well, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. 
Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So that's interesting if you know your Exodus. Jesus quotes the seventh, sixth, eighth, ninth, and fifth commandments in that order. Don't fool around. Don't murder, steal, lie, and make sure you honor your parents, Mr. Ruler Man. In other words, embrace humility and love others as you love yourself. It's not like Jesus didn't know the other commandments. The Ten Commandments as a whole could be subbed up by saying love God and love others. The first four that Jesus didn't mention are all about loving God, having no other gods before Yahweh, having no craven images of Yahweh, making sure you treat the name Yahweh with holy respect, it, uh, the holy respect that it deserves, and trusting God enough to put down your work on the seventh day for a Sabbath. Remember how the man first came up to Jesus calling him good teacher? And then Jesus stated right up front, hey, no one's good except for God alone. It's as if Jesus is like laying the groundwork, right? Okay, before we get into the details of how you are going to be doing the sort of kingdom things that kingdom people do um, for others, we're just going to assume right up front that you're interested in coming at this conversation from the point of view of worship to God, or you wouldn't even be here, right? Now, let's take um, this assumed posture before God and mention... Uh, so he takes these, these, this assumed posture before God and he mentions five of the commandments that deal with loving others in a kingdom fashion. It doesn't matter how much wealth or power or influence or youth you have. In kingdom ethics, loving others is the same as loving God. And this rich young ruler, he looks at Jesus and as far as we can tell, with all honesty, says, all of these I've kept from my youth. Now, you and I might assume if we're standing beside God, looking down at this encounter with our hindsight, like I said before, um, we might say, start thinking to ourselves, well, all sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? And the truth is that this man hadn't kept all of those commandments since that morning, if we're going to be honest, let alone since his youth. But if we were to embrace humility and consider this passage in a posture of humility, the real reason that we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is because each and every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that if inheriting the kingdom depended upon us keeping the law, we'd be in a most desperate condition. Knowing how the story ends, we know that ultimately it is Jesus' righteousness that allows us to truly inherit the kingdom by his atoning sacrifice on the cross and new life in his resurrection. So, so, so in that moment, if this encounter helped the man get in touch with his own depravity and helped, helps then in turn us get in touch with ours, so be it. I think that there is a further detail though of that depravity that Jesus really wants to stress with this man though. 
When Jesus heard the rich young man's, the rich young ruler's response, he said to him, well, you've kept all these since your youth, huh? One thing you still lack. The thing that ties this all together. Me. Sell all you have, Jesus says, and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. There it is. That's the element that ties the whole thing together. We finally get to what this whole thing was building to, and it's Jesus himself. You want to taste living water? You want to inherit eternal life? You want to live in the kingdom and, and truly know what it means to be Israel, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of others? It's going to take swallowing your pride. It's going to mean accepting that you can't do this on your own. It's going to mean um, uh, it's only going to be done in relationship to Christ, with Christ. From there, it's going to take humility and sacrifice. It's going to take giving up not just your tithe, not just a list of rules or, or religion, not just your religion. It is going to take 100% of who you are. The only offering percentage that Jesus was ever cared, that ever, care, ever cared about was 100%. 100% of your wealth, 100% of your influence, 100% of the rest of your life, young man. You want to inherit eternal life? Jesus is saying, walk this way. I am the way. Accept no substitutes. Now, that being said, the big question then, the next big question that we should be asking if we were to tackle this with our own humility is, does Jesus want me or, or you to sell all that we have and distribute the money to the poor? Is this um, uh, prescriptive rather than descriptive? Maybe. Probably not. And certainly not as a general rule. The problem was never this guy's wealth. The problem wasn't that he was rich. It was always his lack of humility and his assumption that he could do things to earn God's favor. It was always his humility. The problem was that he had allowed other gods to infiltrate his faith. He forgot about those first four commandments. He hadn't been living as though God was on the throne. He was hoping to access the eternal. Get this. He was hoping to access the eternal by managing the superficial. And that just doesn't work. So when Jesus tells him that the hard thing to do would be to sell all and follow him, that's what it took to expose this dude's heart. Remember how we mentioned that, that perhaps the first four commandments might have been summed up by Jesus' statement, God is good, or God alone is good. And then, of course, the next five commandments were specifically mentioned by Jesus in, in reference to how the man was to treat others. But if you've been watching as much Sesame Street as I have, you know that that only adds up to nine. There was one other commandment left the 10th commandment, which may in fact be the key to the whole shebang. You shall not covet 
your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet. You shall not allow your life to be about your next possession, your next toy, your next accumulation, uh, your, your, your accumulation of wealth, your accumulation of power, your accumulation of control. In other words, you shall not be selfish because this kingdom, it's not about you. Luke tells us that when this rich young man heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He had just been asked by the king of the universe to follow him into eternal life. And when he found up he had to give up his bank account, the cost of giving up his wealth for God's glory was far too much. And he went away sad. Now, again, if we're standing up by God's side with our hands on our shoulders, shaking our head at this man, at how this man could be so, so foolish, I don't think we can get the point of the passage. But if we're in a posture of humility, well, I can only speak for myself, honestly. If, if I'm standing in a posture of humility, and if I'm being honest with the one who knows the extent of my righteousness, I know that I do the same thing every day. I am an expert at training the eternal for the temporary. I am an expert at trading the things of God's kingdom for the things of Joe's kingdom, which is definitely not worth fighting for. But with Jesus, there's always hope. Jesus, he kept his eyes on that guy as he walked away sad. He loved them. He loved them like a parent who needs to let a wayward adult child walk away. And seeing that he had become sad, Jesus commented with his eyes locked on the guy, with his eyes locked on the guy's back, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is for someone to see eternal life in front of them when they are blinded by their own empire, their own possessions, their own money. Those who heard Jesus say this said, um, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus, still with his eyes on that man, may have been thinking about that lost sheep that he had talked about a few chapters earlier, said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Peter steps in, you know it was Peter. He steps in and he says, well, you know, we've left our homes and, and followed you. And Jesus then finally breaks 
his focus away from the man who was walking away and now looks at his disciples. And he looks at his disciples, he looks at these men that he, he just loves. And he says, listen, Peter, listen, guys. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times in this time and in the age to come. Not only will you inherit eternal life, not only does inheriting eternal life mean that you get to go to heaven when you die. It's about living the abundant life worth pursuing now, today. That, that's what the guy wasn't getting. He thought that the, that the possessions and wealth and the accumulation of power and influence, being a rich young man, that was the thing, being a ruler of significance and power. He thought that was the eternal life, and he walked away sad when the king of the universe asked him to enter his kingdom. No, our God is about bigger things than that. Our God is about eternal things, and he is inviting you and I to be a part of that. He's a part, he's inviting us to be a part of that reality, that kingdom. The question before us then is, will we follow him? Or are we gonna walk away sad? Will we follow him or, or are we gonna continue making our lives about our own empires? See, Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' kingdom might be upside down, but I know this if I know nothing else about his kingdom. His kingdom is the only one worth fighting for. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much uh, for the faithfulness of um, this community to follow your, um, your will. I'm especially uh, humbled and, and thankful, as, as Kara mentioned before, that um, even though uh, last week it, it looked like um, our, uh, our, our giving was, was down as a, as a result of the, um, the, this virus situation, uh, we actually um, finished April very strong. Um, and Father, I am just so thankful. I, I want to stand in a posture of humility and say, Father, how can I not make this about um, me? How I can not make this about us? How can we make this for your glory? Solely Della Gloria. How can we make this about God's glory alone? Father, help us with that. Help us, guide us in your direction. Help us to not walk away sad from the things of your kingdom and help us to embrace them. Help us to embrace things like love and joy and peace. Help us to serve others. Help us to, to reflect your world, um, to reflect your love back into a broken world. Father, fill us with your energy. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and guide us in the way of justice and truth. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.